0: operators, especially those that have raised investor money, they've got to be able to deliver on the NOI targets that they're sharing with investors, because some investors, they might be seeking liquidity. So in lieu of being able to provide them liquidity with a sale or refinance, you at least want to be able to deliver them a strong dividend. Welcome to Surgeon Syndicate. If you're paying attention, you know that you only make money when you work. It might be great money, but it's dependent on you. The information on this podcast will help you solve that. We interview experts and provide analysis into financial freedom through commercial real estate.
1: Why? To help physicians like you thrive. Let's dive in. Welcome back to Surgeon Syndicate. This is the second half of our interview with the conversation here with Karthik Mulpuri. Welcome back, Karthik.
0: Thank you, Mike. Glad to be on.
1: So when we finished our conversation before, we were talking about how debt appetite of banks. So it wasn't that long ago where where part of the whole run-up was banks were fighting for loans and they were doing 90% loans and 80% loans and interest rates were low. But now not only have interest rates gone up, banks aren't lending the same.
0: That's right.
1: And so this has kind of changed the environment. If you're looking to do a deal and if it's a million-dollar deal where couple of years ago, you may have only had to bring $100,000 down payment to that. It now may be $300,000, $500,000 because the bank wants to de-risk the whole process. What is that doing in the market to the price of assets? Is that driven down the price of assets yet because it's harder for people to buy them or are things hanging on out there?
0: it absolutely is affecting the price of assets the multifamily space uh, in our core markets we've seen cap rates go up 50 100 150 basis points depending on the asset type and the location that it's in and so what that's done is that you know volume has dropped off a cliff this year right because there exists a significant bid ask spread to what buyers can pay and what sellers want to take right So it has taken hold, and at least in the multifamily space, typically, not typically, but a lot of the deals that I'm just anecdotally seeing get done are loan assumption deals, right? Where folks are taking over, say, a 3% or 4% interest rate loan at a low LTV from the seller, right? And if the duration is long enough, uh, then it's a strategy where you might be able to hit your cash on cash goal, but you may also be able to find the right exit point to sell that asset, right? But creativity is really needed in today's market.
1: So I'm hearing some of the doctors I know who are listening, who are new to this whole space, who are wondering, well, if you own a property and you've got a low interest rate and a long time on the loan, why would you sell it?
0: Yeah, you wouldn't. (laughs) You know, it's (laughs) best. It's best to hold on during this time frame because if you're looking to sell now, you are going to have to accept that you're going to take a discount, right? And so, yeah, I mean, with our assets, right, especially we have a Class A, Class B portfolio, right, in a tertiary market in Virginia, we want to sell that at some point, right? But my partner and I, we just have never had a conversation about selling it in this environment.
1: So I guess where I was going with that, if people have investors and depending on the liquidity and where your investors are, and this is something that sometimes will drive the market. If somebody bought it and they told their investors it was a three to five year hold and your investors are clamoring that they want their capital back, there's sometimes a point where there's a pressure from the inside of a deal for a sponsor to go ahead and sell that and return the capital back to the investors. So. Although it may be if you're doing with just your money, it's you're like, oh, this is fine. It's cash flowing. It's doing great. Why would I ever sell it? But there's still some out there being sold because of other things going on.
0: You're exactly right. And folks like you and I are looking for special situations like that, right? Kind of like unnatural to the deal in a sense, but partnership split, maybe there's a divorce, some sort of event like that, right? Where the asset has to be sold because of breaking the partnership or for some sort of outlier type of reason.
1: Yeah. I'm starting to see, and it really seems like in the last month, a lot of smaller properties starting to come on the market that have been owner operated, whether it's a small flex space, small retail, and the owners are getting ready to retire. And now they're selling And so there's still a lot of this when we just look at demographics. There's a lot of baby boomers who are heading into retirement age and they're deciding to cash out. And so there's still this flow into the market. That's some of the stuff we've been looking at here in Green Bay or some retail centers that the owners are in their mid-70s. And some of them, they built. 20 years ago, and they never intended to move through an investment strategy. They've just been collecting rent, and now they're deciding it's time to retire. So, are you seeing any of that? Or in the Southeast, is it more because it's been such a booming market that there's not a lot of leftover stuff out there? Because you talked about your deal searching, doing that at work and finding these assets. For somebody who's out there listening who may think like, okay, well, if I wanted to buy some real estate, it's like a house. You go and you look at the MLS or you drive around and you look for a for sale sign. What are the things beyond that that when we get to commercial real estate that you do to try and find deals? So when somebody says, oh, I got this deal and we got it off market and it's a great deal, I've heard doctors go, what does that mean and what are they doing to come up with this deal?
0: Yeah, so it's about relationships. And so for us in the multifamily world, we've built long relationships, right, with all the key brokers in the market. So they've gotten to know me, know my partner over the past few years. And it's a case where you're meeting with them in person regularly, you're calling them every week, every other week. The deals that they do send you, you're providing feedback to them. And if you They're asking like, Hey, I need an offer written on this asset. I need to show my seller that the market is the market happy to do that for them as well. Right. So it's relationship building. Right. And when brokers feel confident in you and that you can close a deal and you're not going to be a headache for them through the process, then they're going to send you deals before they hit the broader market. So for us, Every single one of the deals that we've done in the multifamily space, they've all been off-market deals that we've gotten through brokers before they hit the market, right? And for us, given the craziness of the last few years, in terms of all the eyeballs on multifamily, if a deal hit the market, right, it was impossible for us to compete with whoever the top bid was going to be. And so it's been invaluable to us for building our portfolio. And especially in this environment, right, where it's become even trickier to do deals, given that's kind of been a moving goalpost and the equity capital has not quite been out there as it was, say, a couple of years ago, we are seeing a good bit of off-market deals come through for brokers. Now, the challenge of that is that I think more so in this environment versus say a couple years ago it's more a fact-finding mission that the broker is conducting on behalf of the seller i don't think a lot of sellers who are marketing their assets off market are very serious about selling and there is a part of me that does believe that in some processes it might actually be better to be on the back end of a process versus the front end Right. Cause I think in this environment, like some sellers are desperate, like they kind of need to be beaten up a little bit. Right. That ultimately all these groups passed and this is the market. Right. And some sellers, they'll just hold, but then other sellers will accept it. Right. And sell. So I think it's actually a good time potentially for newer investors to be looking at the stuff more seriously that's on market and just submit. Right. Because. A couple of years ago, if we were bidding on an asset, we wouldn't bid if we were, say, 20%, 25%, 30% off the mark, right? Brokers would find that disrespectful and stop sending you deals if you did that, right? (laughs) And so now, however, it's become a bit of a norm, right? Where the offers that are coming in for assets, they're all over the place. And so these days, we haven't had qualms about throwing in offers that are 20% 25%. 25% in one case, actually 30% below the asking price and was actually taken seriously, right? And it turned out that the clearing bid was maybe a few base a few percentage points more than that. So it's an interesting time out there and it's a good time to be entering the space.
1: That's interesting. So a couple of years ago, if you came in with a low offer. When people are buying a home, it's usually like the person who owns the house who gets offended, but the brokers were almost offended if you put out a lowball offer, where now they're just happy you made an offer. They're like, come on, throw a number at me. Let me take something back to the seller.
0: Yeah, because it's not just that folks are submitting lower offers and that the bid aspirate exists, but part of the reason the bid aspirate exists is because there are a lot of folks sitting on the sidelines. Right. There are a lot of institutional shops that have just decided, Hey, I'm just going to go pencils down the rest of this year because I don't know where the world is headed. Right. So it's tough for me to underwrite investment. So I think that's added to the pain that I think brokers are feeling when they're running processes.
1: So it may not be this trickle down. They've said they're just going to sit it out and wait and see where things are at. Is that the avoiding catching the falling knife that? if prices are heading down they want to see where they end up before they get back in the game
0: that's exactly it yeah and then I think for many of them they're just busy managing their existing portfolio right because in this environment that uh, we're in asset management has just become much more magnified than a couple years ago because a couple years ago you could be a crappy asset manager and then sell your asset at a nice return, right? Because someone would be able to pay for the ability to do the value add or the deep value add that you left for them. But in this environment, it's not quite there. <laughs> so you've got to be able to deliver in terms of the pro forma that you're underwriting too.
1: So what you're saying is that a couple of years ago, if there was a property that needed some work to add value to it and bring it up in the market, that somebody might buy it do a little bit of the work, and because everything was going up, they could turn around and sell it, take a profit, and then the rest of the work the next guy could do. Or you could do 20% of it, and then the next one do 20%, and the next one do 20%, and it could go through this cycle. But now, because you can't just turn it and sell it for more, mm-hmm. they're digging in and going, okay, if we're going to make money on this, we need to do the whole plant.
0: That's right, right, and I think you're kind of referencing the capex portion, and I think that's fair on the capex portion. But in terms of the operating portion as well, it makes sense, right? So I think operators, especially those that have raised investor money, right, they've got to be able to deliver on the NOI targets that they're sharing with investors because. One of the things that we always have our eyes glued to is hey, what was our NOI target this year or that year? Are we on track? Are we beating it? Can we hit the dividends that we promised investors per pro forma? Right. And I think that's just become much more important because to your earlier point, right, some investors they might be seeking liquidity and some of these deals might be dragging out. Right. So, in lieu of being able to provide them liquidity with the sale or refinance you at least want to be able to deliver them a strong dividend, right? And so I think that's another reason why folks are so focused on asset management over the past 12 to 18 months.
1: Well, that could be a lot of just keeping their investors because a lot of people, they've paused their PREFs. The PREF return for any of our newer listeners, a lot of deals when you go into a syndication, they say, we're going to pay you an 8 or 9% PREF, which means the investor gets the first 9% of profit that comes off before they start splitting profit. And as some of these deals have changed, so they're harder to even see profit. Some syndicators have had what they call pause their PREF, so they're not paying that preferred return to investors. So investors are sitting there and instead of seeing this check show up in their account, every month or every quarter or however long the press were paid, that money's gone away. And so people aren't going to be as excited to go and invest with somebody again when they come back and go, hey, we've got a new deal. And you're like, you're not paying me on the last deal.
0: That's a really good point. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Try to keep some people still in their court because they worked hard to get this group of investors, because a lot of people will just invest with the same operators. They know and they trust them. But once that trust is broken, they may not come back. And I've got a few, some of the syndications that I invested in, when that's the main thing of what I was doing, it's been interesting to see them turn the corner because early on when I was learning I would say, you know, luckily they were smaller dollars. There was one that had some really short-term debt that luckily those guys saw the turn and they sold it right away. So it still made money. I was like, awesome. We got out of that one. But now there's a couple others out there that are struggling to keep up with their business plan. Things haven't gone as well. And now whenever I see the email, I'm like, oh, is this a capital call? You know, I've already paused preps. Now I think it's for more money to (laughs) keep this deal going. But that's another opportunity that's out there that I'm starting to see a lot of is for the people who have the money who are looking to invest. Some of these deals that aren't good, the operators are changing their approach and they need to recapitalize it. They need more money. And they don't want to go back and do a capital call because when you pause for F's and you do capital calls, those are things that passive investors will make your name mud and they're not going to like you as much. So they're doing other things like some hard money loans going out to the market or selling part of their general partner status to somebody to bring some more money in without diluting their limited partners. Are you seeing anything else out in the finance world that maybe some of the people in trouble are doing? It will be an opportunity to investors who have money they'd like to deploy right now
0: i think you covered a few of those strategies i've seen the rise of these rescue capital funds to your point right that they're raising dedicated pools of funds to invest into these trouble deals to take over in some cases i think the entire operations of the property right so like either supporting the existing gp team or if the operations are really struggling I think there is some trading out right of GP teams as a whole that's I think been discussed. So it is an interesting time out there. And it's interesting because like the dynamic you're describing, it's not just real estate, but really is applying like across the world. So I do startup consulting, right? So I work with early and mid stage startups and help them with strategic finance in an outside role, right? And One thing that is happening there, right, is that a lot of companies are having trouble raising their next round of equity. And so in order to do it, in order to survive, oftentimes they're having to take on some pretty onerous terms from the next group of investors, right? In some cases, those new investors are just cramming down the old investors, right? Or the new investors are entitled to the first few turns in some cases of an exit relative to the amount of money that they put in. Right. So it's one of those times where, whether it's real estate, it's non real estate, there is an opportunity for opportunistic folks <laughs> out there.
1: So, with that, since we came to this new area with where you're talking about startups, because this is an area that I've recently invested in one, but it was something I knew pretty well. And it's always been a scary space, but it's another potential place for investors to go. If somebody were new to the startup world, and they're not sitting on, I got millions of dollars. When you get into venture capital and early startup, what kind of dollar values are you looking at to be able to invest in some of these? Are these big dollars or are they smaller investments sometimes?
0: So if you're investing into a company they tend to be smaller dollars right so oftentimes pre-revenue companies are raising pre-seed or angel rounds where it's not institutions jumping in right it's a bunch of high net worth individuals that are jumping in to fund a company until they show some revenue traction to then go raise from an institutional investor right and the common check size that people put in at the pre-seed level when they're making angel investment is $50,000. Some cases, I've gotten into deals as an angel putting in $5,000 and I was able to do that because I was able to add some value in other ways, right? So you can jump in with low dollar values. It's one of those things though, that if you are making a one-off angel investment, in your mind after you invest, you mentally just have to write it down to zero, right? Because it's a lottery ticket. (laughs) You know, The odds are that it's not gonna work out and that you're gonna lose your money. What I'd encourage people to do is maybe explore investing in funds or angel syndicates, because you have networked individuals that spend their entire days focused on the space, basically building a portfolio of these assets. Right. And so the venture is ruled by the power law, where you're hoping that at least like one in 10 can return the fund and the group of the other investments that you've made, they can add incrementally more return on top of that to get you to a 3x or a 4x or a 5x for your fund. But the other thing that folks should keep in mind is that the majority of venture funds, they lose money, right? So they're not even able to return initial capital. Or, you know, they're just able to return the initial capital, right? So basically zero IRR. And it's one of those things where with the venture space, it is a small set of funds that is actually able to deliver significant value. And what happened with the venture space is given the low interest rate environment and given all the folks seeking yield, there were a ton of folks that came into the venture market the past few years and deployed money at aggressive valuations. And many of these folks hadn't spent time as investors or hadn't come from tech and startups in other cases. And so they didn't quite know what they were doing. And so there is something going on now right in the space where folks are having to mark down the value of their investment. So all this to say, if the folks listening to this podcast are interested in the tech space, the startup space, it is an exciting time. With the rise of AI, this is kind of the start of the next wave, right? Where we had the internet wave, we had the mobile wave, then we had the social wave, and now I think we've got the AI wave. There's a lot of froth out there. I think there are going to be some big winners, ultimately, at the end of the day when it's all said and done. But then most of these companies are not going to return the value of the initial investment. So if folks are interested in deploying into funds what they should look to do is get a sense of the track record of the manager, right? I really want someone who has a long track record of delivering returns or hopefully outsized returns. And many times they're able to do so because they're just so plugged in, right? And venture is an ecosystem for the most part where you kind of have to know the folks downstream to you and upstream to you, right? So that you're getting really good deal flow. And then your portfolio companies, you can send them off to the folks writing larger checks when they're ready for that. So just with anything, right? Diligence fund managers and diligence companies if you want to invest directly.
1: So as doctors, I get a lot of things where somebody's got some medical device or medical thing. And so they reach out to doctors to invest in these things with most of them, and some of them seem great. And it's funny I look back at one I almost invested and in, seemed like a great device. It was like five years ago, it still hasn't come to market. So I feel better that I let that one go. When these things come to a dock, is it better to just let them go? Or is there a process to evaluate if this one is worth investing in? Or does this go back to, like you were saying, the whole venture model that What I've heard is seven out of 10 are going to lose all their value. One or two are going to tread water and maybe make a little money. And you're really looking for that one out of 10 that'll give the oversized returns. Does that model work where the idea is you got to invest in 10 to have any hope? Uh, And investing in one is like buying a lottery ticket.
0: Yeah, if you're going to look to invest one off in companies, you should look to invest in multiple companies, right? Because otherwise, to your point, it's a lottery ticket. And a doctor shouldn't just say no to the deals they get if they're interested. I mean, it's one of those things where you're looking to you know, assess the team. First and foremost, is this a team that can execute? Is this a team that's experienced? Is this a team too that has startup chops, right? Can they move quickly? Can they hustle, right? And oftentimes, the executive who spent 20 years at a big company is maybe not the right person to be in a startup environment, right? Because they need a lot of support, they need a lot of resources, and that's just not there with an early stage startup. It's also helpful to invest in second or third time entrepreneurs, Cause they've gone through it once. They've worked out their silly mistakes and they know generally which mistakes not to repeat again. And so that's always helpful. You need to analyze the market, right? So the market size needs to be big if you're looking for a venture sort of return and you really should look to do your own research in terms of true market size. Right. So, you know, every pitch deck that a doctor will receive will basically talk about a billion dollar plus or two or three or four or five billion dollar market opportunity. But you should do your own homework to figure out what the true market opportunity actually is. Right. Because the bigger the market, the smaller the percentage of the overall market you need to capture on a traction basis. Right. And so traction is another thing. Right. So to your point, a lot of opportunities you get sent, I get sent or pre-revenue companies, and pre-revenue companies you need to have a strong team a strong product strong market but if those don't exist right then it's a pass right and it's always better uh, if a company is out there generating revenue right versus not sharing revenue right because generating revenue even if it's a small set of customers goes to show that the product is adding value to at least a small set of folks Right. And the nice thing with revenue in the door is that oftentimes it also means that they're getting real world feedback from customers to iterate on their product, to move it forward, to try to achieve product market fit. So those are some of the things that I'd point to in terms of the things that I would analyze.
1: Okay. Are there any great resources out there that somebody said, this sounds pretty cool. I'd like to learn more.
0: Yeah. So there are a lot of blogs out there. What I would say is one thing that VCs are really good at is content marketing. Every VC is a content marketer in some way or another. And the reason why is because they put their names out there, they're going to receive more inbound deal flow. Right. And so I pointed that there's basically been an absolute explosion of content, uh, basically touching on investments of all types, of all sizes. So it's all out there. So, basically, folks jumping in now, it's fortunate for them, right? Because they can go to a bunch of different places to educate themselves.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you, Karthik. That was a great expedition beyond uh, real estate, but it was some cool stuff to hear about. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners that you think doctors need to know when they're looking at their investments or real estates or capital markets?
0: Yeah, I think a couple of things, right? One, we're entering a buying window, right? So now's a good time to be entering the market. Uh, The second thing that I point to is do your own homework, right? And I think that was a principle that a lot of folks ignored (laughs) the past few years when capital was cheap, right? And they're getting burned by that because they didn't do their homework back then. So I would encourage folks to do that. And in order to do your own homework, you've got to learn the fundamentals of what you're investing in, or at least the basics, right? So that you can ask the right sort of questions to the operators that you're investing with. So it's a good time, right, to be learning because there's just so much material out there on the internet to educate yourself for free. Yeah.
1: And I think a head start on a lot of those, as you talked about, your foray into multifamily started with a mastermind. And I think that's one of the great new educational sources are masterminds where you can get A group of people together and somebody at the top who can help educate and then a group that can work together there's some great masterminds and there's some not so great masterminds so i think at least in my experience if you could spend any time with those people and hear about their experiences and kind of see are they actually doing the things that were talked of supposedly they're supposed to be learning in the mastermind and having success that's usually money well spent on the education process.
0: Yeah. And like, look, there's an instinct that you will feel when you're speaking with the head of a mastermind. I've been fortunate to join a couple of strong masterminds led by some strong leaders, but do your homework as well in terms of the masterminds that you're thinking of joining.
1: Awesome. Well, Karthik, thank you for being here. This has been great. To our listeners, thank you for joining us here on Surgeon Syndicate. I I have one task of all the listeners, please. Go give us a ranking, leave us a review. These are things that help other people hear about it. If you don't like the show, let us know and maybe we can make it better, but that'll help more people hear about where we're at. So thank you for joining us. This has been an episode of Surgeon Syndicate. If you found value in this episode, no other surgeons are hungry to become job optional. You can help them by sharing this content today. I also want to serve you better, so I want to offer you two things. Number one, I'll be able to give you the content in an even better way if you can take a moment and leave an honest review of the show explaining what you like and what you don't. Number two, if you are a surgeon and serious about this, you don't want to do this on your own because you don't want to make mistakes with your money. I'd be happy to help. Schedule a call. We can make a plan. Looking forward to having you with me on the next episode.